Welcome back to Read Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMP, LP, Louisville. More summer reading. Reviewing the 2020 winner of the United Kingdom's prestigious Man Booker Prize, Shuggy Bain, by Scottish LGBT novelist Douglas Stewart. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 22 of Read and Succeed. Continuing with our summer reading schedule, reviewing Scottish-American novelist and fashion designer Douglas Stewart's simultaneously brutal and brilliant debut novel and winner of the 2020 Man Booker Prize, Shuggy Bain, published under the Grove Press in print last year. We'll follow that same British line of inquiry next month, reading and reviewing the 2021 International Booker Prize for the United Kingdom's best translated English work, Freer Dom literally, Soul Brother, by French Senegalese novelist David Jupp, first published in French in 2018 and translated into English by a Greek-American poet and author Anna Moskovakis, under the title At Night All Blood is Black, for Pushkin Press in 2020, about one black Senegalese infantryman's descent into madness and colonial-inspired rage while serving in the French army in World War I. Heavy material indeed, but also beautifully constructed and unforgettable prose. After that, we'll transition into the winners of this year's Pulitzer Prizes in the fall and finish out the 2021 season. Speaking of finishing seasons, now that the 2020 tax season is hopefully over for our listeners, we cordially invite you to consider supporting Community Radio and Read Succeed's host station, Forward Radio, by making a tax-deductible donation to the station as part of your financial plan for 2021. For a $20 donation, you essentially fund an entire day's worth of broadcasting. For a $50 donation, you essentially fund one hour per week of broadcasting, i.e. one of your favorite shows, such as Read and Succeed, for an entire year. For more information, please visit forwardradio.org. Also visit readsucceed.net to access archived episodes of the show and to stay abreast of upcoming episodes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Douglas Stewart's 2020 novel, Shuggy Bain, is, if nothing else, painful to read. Mr. Stewart's prose itself is easily and at times eagerly consumed, but the subject matter itself oscillates under any sober analysis somewhere between heartbreaking and horrific. The story takes place in Glasgow, Scotland of the early 1980s, once the industrial epicenter of the British Isles and the British Empire in the early and mid-20th century, but now an open post-industrial freefall under the openly Scotland-last policies and personality of late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Within the doom and gloom and exquisitely crafted seediness and soot of this Glasgow reside two inseparable individuals, Miss Agnes Bain and the youngest of her three children, Hugh Bain, nicknamed after his philandering and totally absent father, Shug Bain, simply as Shuggy. The Bain family is, like the Glasgow around it, also in decline, recently moving from high-rise tenements to dilapidated housing in a council estate where the family's living conditions are made even more severe by Agnes's severe alcoholism. That, like her penchant for expensive clothes, makeup, and perfume, operates as another, albeit involuntary, escape from the harsh realities around her. Closer to her than anything, however, is Shuggy, author Douglas Stewart's thinly-veiled autobiographical version of himself, aged 5 to 16 throughout the narrative, devoted, sensitive, and unable to follow the path away from Agnes taken by his older siblings, given the fact that his burgeoning homosexuality has little place among the hypermasculinity and homophobia of the 1980s working-class Scotland right outside their door. As such, mentally, spiritually, and physically, Agnes and Shuggy are always within arm's reach of each other. Shuggy absorbing Agnes's greater qualities, and Agnes absorbing Shuggy's unconditional love. 
In true modernist fashion of the English language's outer Celtic ring of James Joyce and Frank McCourt, Mr. Douglas is unwilling to give Agnes' story anything other than the lost battle one always expected, but not before delineating the parallel lines between family tragedy and family affection. One ended with Agnes, the other lived on in Shuggy. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This next clip is a remote interview of Douglas Stewart by Irish author Colm Toybin for the Curit International Festival of Literature in Ireland in April of this year. For those that followed us last summer, the interviewer, Mr. Toybin, was also a featured moderator in Read Succeed's four-episode series on Hungarian novelist Laszlo Krasnohorke. Interesting insightful conversation in that both the interviewer and the interviewee here are internationally claimed and award-winning gay authors that discuss Shuggy's creative arc as an LGBT youth, not only as a literary device, but as informative of their own experiences as LGBT individuals in the same late 20th century Gaelic culture that the novel takes place in, as well as how Shuggy Bain fits within the larger continuum of modern Scottish and Irish literature that celebrates an otherness opposite British identity that is complementary to both their and Shuggy's self-identity as gay men. You can learn more about the Curit Festival at www.curit.ie, that's C-U-I-R-T dot I-E. You can learn more about Read and Succeed at readandsucceed.net. And enjoy this interview. This is Colm Tobin. Um, I'm at Court Festival happening between the 21st and 25th of April. And I'm here to interview Douglas Stewart about his novel, Shuggy Bain. Douglas, hi, hello. Um, let's start at the beginning of this. Could you describe to me when you first thought of the book and then how that thinking made its way first into the writing of the early sentences of the book? Oh, yeah, that's a big question. It's, uh, <laughs> I actually sat down to begin writing Shuggy in 2008. And at first it wasn't necessarily a conscious thought. I wasn't, I wouldn't give myself any uh, lofty goals such as I'm going to write a novel. I sat down really to write scenes as they came to me, uh, as I saw them and as I felt them. And the first words I actually wrote actually came from chapter 13 of the two brothers going across the sea of slag and uh, scrapping for copper. Uh, because I could see the scene in my mind and it was so much about masculinity and, and shame of Shuggy's sexuality that I, that I could really see it come fully formed. And, and I approached the book that way for the first draft. I wrote most of the scenes actually out of sequential order. And, uh, and before I knew it, I actually had a first draft of about 900 pages, but that was how, that was how I got through the first hurdle. And just take me through that scene with, where they're, they're, they're almost in this sort of post-industrial landscape, you know, hugely polluted Scottish landscape. And um, could you just take me through how much of that's from memory? How did you see it? I mean, how did you remember it, if it's from memory? And if not, anyway, just take me through it. <laughs> yeah, it's a scene um, where we actually open where the middle brother, Leek, is sitting on a sea of slag. And we think he's by himself at the very beginning. But I was thinking very much, I was a kid that grew up in North Lanarkshire, which is the central belt of Scotland, uh, just outside Glasgow. And I came of age of a time when Thatcher had shut down all of the industry. And so I grew up not far from a coal mine that was, was just left to waste and to rot. And for the first couple of years after it closed, the kids could still go play, we could roam freely. It became this huge adventure, adventure ground for us. But um, the older boys in my housing scheme would go and, and strip copper from the mine and actually just take it because it was a way to make a couple of pounds. There wasn't enough money coming around and people didn't have any work. And, and so they were going to strip copper. and. So although the scene comes from a lot of memories uh, in terms of I remember what the coal mine is like and I remember what the copper is, I wanted to start it hopefully quite poetically where there's just this young man alone and he's sort of adrift on it. He's really at the crest of one of these waves and he's looking out both towards the housing scheme he comes from and then at Glasgow in the far distance and he's almost like a Thomas Hardy character as that's how I always viewed him, almost like a young Jude Folly where he's, he's thinking about going to art school and how he's going to get on with his life and then suddenly his younger brother drops in on the scene and we think he's been alone the whole time but he's, his younger brother Shuggy who is only seven or eight has been trudging across the slag and, and struggling to get there and as soon as we meet him we almost also realise he's an obstacle to Leek's life and to his dreams. I remember an argument in, in Scotland, uh, which was a great place for arguments in those years, when <laughs> Glasgow, I think, was the city of culture. And uh, 
certain intellectuals and very serious people in Glasgow said, that's a ridiculous name for a city, city of culture. Why don't we call it worker city? And the next argument was great because the next argument said workers. There's no work in Glasgow. No one's working anymore. What are you talking about? This work business, this idea of Scotland, the work ethic, the shipbuilding, the, 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 what you call about that sort of central industrial area. The fact that Scotland was so implicated in the empire in so many ways, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that suddenly everyone realized, I mean, it, it, had been, it had been happening gradually, as though it, it was as though when Thatcher arrived, it suddenly became clear to everybody what had been happening in front of their eyes, that this, con- this country, was being closed down. This country was being desecrated. Uh, just wonder if you could, if you could um, talk about what this meant to you when you were growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I come from a long line of proud working class men. You know, my my family before me, my father, my grandfather, uh, were joiners and slaters and grain hodders, and and they believed very firmly in trades and going out and learning a skill, and then they would provide for their family. We never had very much, but we had enough, and we were we were very proudly working class in that way. And then I'm born in the mid 70s. And by that point, Glasgow's already in a free fall and a decline. And so my first consciousness or my first memories are really of all the men, not only in my family, but around me, um, unable to find work or unable to find enough work or not work in what they're, they're skilled and they're trained at. And so my entire youth was really surrounded by young men. Unemployment went to about 26% in Glasgow uh, and stayed there for about a generation. And that was really the backdrop um, to my youth. And it came at a pivotal time as well in the city because Glasgow, as you said, was a very important city in the empire. It has a bit of a bloody history as well in terms of how it made its wealth and and we're sort of uh, reconciling that at the moment. But it was a very wealthy, very prosperous city. It brought a lot of Irish immigration. Uh, which later on led to some sectarian problems, but it was a very proud uh, city. And then in the 1950s and 60s, it was entirely reorganized because it was far too dense. There was a lot of old tenement buildings that didn't have indoor toilets and didn't have uh, really the sanitary conditions that families needed. And so the city, much of it was torn down and reorganized into these housing estates or high-rise flats which at the time, I think many people, certainly the middle class planners, thought this was a great healthful way for families to be organized. And and within a few years, you suddenly realize that the houses are built too cheaply and also there's no human aspect to it. There's nowhere for people to congregate. There's not enough green spaces, there's maybe no community center in these housing schemes. And then on top of that comes in mass unemployment. And so you have people feeling both marooned Uh, actually really physically and also emotionally and then also overlooked by a Westminster government and so part of uh, the problem with the unemployment was the feeling it put in people's bones. It was that sort of the feeling of not being worth very much or not being cared for is a hard thing to to overcome. And so a lot of really sticky things swept into the city. You know, we, we obviously have a very bad history, Glasgow specifically, with drink and drugs and addiction in that way. And, and a lot of that still continues on to today. But me growing up, uh, you know, perhaps if I'd been a middle class kid and there'd been addiction in my family, it would only have been my family and the, the families on the streets around us would have been okay. But I'd always understood addiction to be a societal problem and because my family had a tough time, but then so did the family across the road and two or three up the street a little bit. And so there was a strange twisted solidarity in that. The Tories and Thatcher had it in for the north of England as much as they did for Scotland, but there seemed something much more intense in the relationship, or the lack of a relationship, <laughs> or a bad relationship between the Tories, between Thatcher, the Tories, and Scotland, as mm. though there was something about Scotland that really offended Thatcher, and there was something about Thatcher that really offended Scotland. I mean, it wasn't an ordinary you know, not voting for her. There was something visceral and strange going on. Yeah, there was. And I think a lot of it comes from both Scottish and Irish pride. Uh, You know, I'm a kid of both um, an Irish immigrants and also Scots from the north of Scotland. And Glasgow is made up of a lot of Irish immigrants. And I think we were just incredibly proud. And there seemed to be a spirit of wanting to break Glaswegians of Scottish origin or of Irish origin too, but also an othering of them, I always felt. I always felt that we didn't belong in 
in the United Kingdom, or we weren't cared for in the way that you know the rest of the country was, even as through in Edinburgh or down in England, and certainly not, uh, we weren't living the same a parallel life to Westminster. And that just makes you feel very much like you're on your own. I think we've for a long time harbored very deep feelings about control and about who uh, oversees us and what sort of shape we have to our own, what power, what agency we have to make our own destiny. And a lot of that was came to the fore in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but Glasgow was placed, for anyone who's never been, was uh, placed as a city in decline. Uh, the government never told anyone in Glasgow this, but they, they categorised it as a place they were going to manage into decline, which meant they weren't going to try and make it better. They were going to allow the city to atrophy. And that was only really revealed in the early 2000s. And um, it seemed like a very good bureaucratic decision, perhaps, to these very unfeeling politicians in Westminster, but it affected over a million people. For those just joining us, this is an April 2021 interview between Scottish novelist Douglas Stewart and Irish novelist Colm Toybin about Stewart's 2020 text, Shuggy Bane. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. I, I swear this story is true. This is about 25 years ago. I was writing something, and I needed to check something. And I made an arrangement to call a journalist on The Scotsman, who was a well-known literary figure in Scotland, and I just had a question for him. I said, are there any Catholic novelists writing in Scotland now? Alan Taylor went, oh, I said, well, there's Muriel Spark. I said, no, there's Muriel Spark. Don't give me Muriel Spark. She's a convert. It's not the same. I'm talking about people who were brought up in the church, brought up as Catholics. Oh. Are there any? And he sh I'm not making this up. He shouted down. He was in the newsroom, obviously, or he was in the subs desk. And he shouted down the subs desk. Hey, guys, can anyone think of a Catholic novelist in Scotland? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> Okay, that's great. That's all I just wanted to check that I wasn't sort of making this up. Um, yeah. Does that story mean nothing to you? It, it certainly does. And actually, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's a funny thing to think about sectarianism or to think about the role of Protestantism or Catholicism in the city, because it doesn't translate very far outside of the world when I, you know, one of the feedbacks that I get from Shuggy Bain is, what is this? What is that sort of strain of history there? And of course, I have to link it back to Belfast and talk about uh, sort of the Orange March there and then Glasgow having the second largest Orange March after that to, to show you the pride of religion in the city. But, you know, it's strange because my entire identity um, in the city was always often defined by my religion first. And when I would meet someone, they would ask me in a roundabout way, do you support Celtic or do you support Rangers? Uh, because they were trying to get me to out myself in terms of was I Catholic or was I Protestant? And it's, it's such a, a frequency of life. It's such a low-lying frequency of life that only when I became an adult and I came to New York, I looked back and I thought, God, that's really strange. Yeah. Um, so, so that what, what, what happened in Scotland... Um, mm just go maybe talk about literary matters for a moment, is mm -hmm. that in that democratic deficit, in the great mm -hmm. silence that arose where Scotland effectively became a Tory-free zone, with mm -hmm. everything everyone held, every, everything that mattered was destroyed, mm -hmm. which was the basically the industrial base. And what was replaced with the housing just simply didn't work. And what arose were voices. And these voices, especially Kelman, especially Alistair Gray, but also, um, you know, Janice Galloway, um, A.L. Kennedy, um, obviously Irving Welsh, um, Alan Warner, Jeff Torrington. I mean, there's so many names and all of them attempted to make it new. It wasn't that all of them were, were suddenly finding that it was a great tradition beginning with Jane Austen, which they could join and they could write nice novels about, um, you know, nice people going to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, but something really, really important started there, which was an almost a sort of a late modernism, where every writer attempted to do something to narrative, to do something to character, to do something to sentences. You know, if there was a party, Alan Warner, they would tie up the host. It would be New Year's Eve. You know, if there was a <laughs> sentence, one for a whole book. If there was a man, he would be blind. If there was another man, he would be drunk. If there was a, if there was a novel, it would be written in sections. You know, it would be competing. And anyway, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about yes. an extraordinary flowering of literary talent in Scotland in, in the very years, I think, when you must be starting to read. That's right. Yeah. But actually, also uh, being a product of the class system, I almost had to 
complete my education and then go in search of them. Because although this flowering is happening all around me, it wasn't like it was put in front of me as a Scotsman, because we were still reading the classics, as you say, or uh, a very middle-class English perspective. But it was a time of enormous humanity and struggle within that humanity. And so you have Alexander Trockey and you have Agnes Owens and George Friel and all the others that you named and Andrew O'Hagan as well, who are trying to, I always think of it as trying to make sense and also claim their place on the planet because as you'd mentioned earlier, it was a time of a great overlooking or where it felt like people were so uninterested in us from the outsider, we were left to struggle by ourselves. And I think when people feel pushed to the margins like that, they answer it with really strong voices. And so they are definitely writers that have had a huge influence on me. But also, funnily enough, those writers write often from a very masculine point of view. I think about Alistair Gray or, or you know, uh, Irvin Welsh, and they're looking at the poor soul or the struggling man in the way that James Kelman does. But it was often the industrial man or, or, or a male at the center of it because it was often a man's world. But I never knew that column. I knew a woman's world. Being a young queer boy, uh, growing up in the 80s, I was absolutely ostracized from the first minute I sort of have a memory. And then also being the son of a single mother, my entire universe is female. And so when I sat down to want to write Shuggy, I wanted to look at the tradition of all these greats, but I wanted to reframe Glasgow from a, a woman's point of view and from a young gay boys. I think it's sometime in maybe, maybe 1993, maybe, in Glasgow, uh, uh, on my own one night, I found there was a gay bar. <laughs> oh, Douglas, it was the saddest thing. I went into it and, I mean, there were about 11 hairy Presbyterians. I'm nothing against hairy Presbyterians, but they looked so guilty. They looked so sad. There was so much dandruff in the room. I, I mean, it was the most frightening thing to witness. 1993, uh -huh. it was under a railway bridge somewhere. And uh -huh. they were drinking. More than drinking, they were staring into the guilty distance, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a good place. I would, It changed very quickly, by the way. I mean, within a few years, there were some wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful places, um, gay places in, in Glasgow. I mean, there were just kids. Gay kids were having the wonderful time. But I'm talking about that year. That year was very... Did, um, so, I mean, obviously, the, there, is no, there was no image for you of being gay in Scotland. There was no mirror. When you looked in the mirror, there was nothing you could see. No, there was absolutely nothing. I mean, I think any queer culture that was happening, but like Derek Jarman or things coming out of the South, hadn't quite made it to the working class community yet. And any sort of role model we would see that were queer, whether it was Kenneth Williams or, or another kind of comedian, was always a, a figure of derision or someone to be laughed at for their femininity. And so it was really, there was no uh, northern star, there was no firmament for me to look at. And even these bars that were existing in sort of the center of Glasgow, it was also, I couldn't afford to access them or to even go in and see these guilty looking Presbyterians uh, because the streets <laughs> that I lived on, the housing scheme I was on uh, was everything that held me. And I think that was actually the shame of it because we talk about it as a time of, you know, a fair, fairly punishing bigotry in lots of different facets, whether it was religious or whether it was homophobic. But the truth is, is I just think a lot of things where there was nobody for anybody to follow because I believe very firmly that my family loved me and loved me um, very deeply. But as a young gay man, they didn't even have an example to point me towards. And, um, and that was really the loneliest place to be, I think, because they couldn't even accept me because they didn't know what it would be like for me. And I'm often asked about the sort of the solidarity of working class communities and and how Shuggy almost upends that notion because it can be a cliche sometimes. When you're poor, you're all in it together and you have to stick together. And it is true that there's solidarity in working class communities, but sometimes it's united against you. And they're, they're sort of like unified in excluding you. And that often was my experience. You mentioned Andrew Hagen earlier, and I, I, I think it's interesting the way he uses um, very great griefs, very large tragedies occurring in very small domestic spaces. So if there's a sitting room, um, he will fill the sitting room with something much larger than, than, the, than the space might suggest. And um, so that in a way that that's that, that idea of working with domestic space, you know, the, those small rooms. Um, and filling them with something much larger is, I think, something that happens in your book. Yeah, and I've always, 
I mean, I, I wanted actually in a very classical sense to think of a Hardy novel or an Austen novel and create something, even if it's ugly at the edges, calm, as beautiful and as sort of sweeping as one of those books. And I had wanted to pay as much attention to the furniture within the Bain's sitting room as somebody would in a more classical novel. But the idea, you know, is that there are very big stories, there are very big human lives being contained in all of these spaces. And poverty has nothing to do with the worthiness of it. It just changes the backdrop of it or perhaps how people approach it. And and so I never really, you know, it was only really when the book started to enter into, this might sound incredibly naive to you, but when it started to enter into British literature, literary discourse, that I was suddenly reminded that, oh yeah, I'm not like everybody else. Like these characters are not the same. This is, you see this as a very story of other people um, as a working class narrative, because for me, it's my entire heart. It's my entire universe. Um, and, you know, these small domestic spaces were, are just entire universes where where lives are fought and lost and and entire dramas are played out and you know much of what happens in Shuggy Bane is just Shuggy watching his mother in these rooms or you know there's a lot of war uh, fought over her actual physical body how some men use it how Shuggy tries to protect it how she herself enhances it and it all happens in the space of a kitchen a living room and and a bedroom in the story um, of James Joyce, it, it's an interesting thing where his father was very unfortunate because he had a son, the second son, Stanislaus, who was in the house all the time and he, he's keeping diaries. So we have a full account of just how bad, just how drunken, uh, really just how malevolent the father was. And um, we have this from Stanislaus. But yet when the father appears in Ulysses as Simon Daedalus, he, he appears in a different guise. He's, um, he's a great man on the street. People like him. He's fully socialized. He sings beautifully. Yes, he's left his family in poverty, but there's a sort of generosity in the way he's represented in the book that is absolutely absent from Stanislaus's versions um, of the father in the two posthumous books, The Diaries and the My Brother's Keeper. I just wonder, in this context, it must have been tempting at some point for you to paint the bleakest portrait of Agnes to, to really show her as being a very bad mother, for example, and to have ruined the lives of her children. And I just wonder, was that instinct there? Did you have to work against it? Or was the natural, was the generosity in the book? And there is great generosity in relation to her. I mean, she emerges oddly as, as a great figure, as, as, as a wonderful person, and despite everything. How did, was this a battle you had to fight or did this come from the beginning as it is in the book? Well, thank you for saying that. That's that's wonderful to hear. It was definitely uh, a fine line to walk over the 10 years. And, and I spent a lot of time uh, wrangling with that and the question and, and trying not to make Agnes often a battlefield to make a point or to make a judgment or to, or to condemn her. I felt when I was writing the book, so many people, so many of the characters were condemning her or abandoning her or judging her. Even the women being very infected by the patriarchy were turning their backs on her. And I felt as a, the writer of the character, I didn't want to also do that. I didn't want to stick the boot in. You know, much of the motivation for writing the book is the only own loss I felt with my own mother calm. Uh, you know, my mother suffered with addiction her entire life from my earliest memories of her up until she lost that struggle at 16 and and she was a bright gregarious uh, generous beautiful woman but she was also deeply hurt and there wasn't she couldn't find her place in the world and she couldn't make her dreams come true and and so she suffered with drink her, her whole life and and sure she tortured us with it but actually she tortured herself most uh, first and foremost and I'm often asked in the book you know it's terrible what Agnes does and how she can do that to Shuggy and she loses all that for Shuggy. But actually the character of Agnes loses everything herself first. And and so I tried to approach the writing of the character with as much empathy as I could. And, and I found the best way to do that. I found two small tricks to do that or two devices. And the first one was is just show it. It doesn't. It didn't need me to underline it or to make a point. It just needed me to be as honest as possible, and 
with great detail, I think, comes dignity, even when you're looking at ugly things. Because if you turn away or you shy away or you pull your punch, then I think you're saying you're more on the side of the reader than you are of the characters. And so I, I firmly lined myself up on the side of the characters. And then I also wanted to share the burden of the, the narrative through the chorus of characters. Why else write a really you know, a working class book if you don't bring in all these characters who are living through the same socioeconomic times. And so I found if I could explain Agnes through the prism of Leek and her new boyfriend Eugene and her mother and the woman across the road, then I could paint a richer portrait, but I could also hopefully not have to make any deep sort of final judgment on her character through Shuggy's point of view. I think the fact that Shuggy is gay is really interesting and important here. And I don't think that's just because you're writing out of um, memory or mm. needing to deal with certain things. I think as a literary device, even if it has nothing whatsoever to do with you personally, it's very important that he has to be isolated, that he doesn't have a peer group of kids, that he isn't one of those boys who goes out every morning with other boys, that he's at home, he's an in-between figure. And this allows him to become a great noticer. And so he's at home noticing. He's noticing for two reasons. One, that he's so isolated himself that, it, that, 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 that the house becomes his world, whereas for other boys it might not be the case. But, but, but I think also that that world is so fragile now that so much it could be lost so easily. But he's watching it with so much concern. So, so there's a sort of dual way that he is um, representing the reader as well in the book. Uh, and that he has an extraordinary ability to see, despite his age. Yeah, thank you. I know that's for question. Question. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, um, you know, I think a, a few things on that. Sometimes as the children of addicts, we become huge watchers. You're always watching the weather as it comes into the room and seeing what's going to change and how a day is going to hit the wall or take a turn that you don't want it to, because you're always trying to get in front of it and change the situation and protect the parent that's suffering at the, at the heart of it. And so myself and all my siblings, I think, are fairly watchful kids. Um, and I wanted Shuggy to have that quality because really his mother is his entire universe. Uh, you know, he's a, almost like a little satellite just sort of orbiting her and, and keeping his eye on her. But she's also the greatest love of his life as well. And, and I wanted him to cling to her in that way and to watch. Uh, but also, it's, it was important for me to show that some kids don't have uh, a safe harbor. Sometimes when you write about uh, queerness in youth, it can become a single issue book or piece of literature. And I thought Shuggy was facing things that were a little bit more complex than that. He's fighting a, a few wars or, I don't know, journeys of self-discovery on different fronts. He's trying to keep his mother together. He's trying to discover himself. And he's also trying to actually keep his family close by. He's trying to hold leak to them and, and trying to, uh, you know, really bond the family together. And so I wanted him to, to, to need, I wanted him to face those things so that his life felt very sort of lonely in that way. The book for me is about the siege of femininity because the queerness that he's attacked for is never really sexualized. I wanted to leave Shuggy at 16 before he really gets into his own sexual identity because it's about people not being able to embrace his femininity or his precociousness or his sensitiveness. But, but ultimately both Agnes and him are under siege because they are expressive, creative souls that are hyper feminine in a time where that was a very risky thing to be. And so I wanted him to be going through that also because I didn't want all the judgment to be on Agnes. I didn't want everybody else to be all right and us just watching this woman disintegrating at the center. That felt a bit cheap to me. Um, and so I wanted everyone else to be suffering with their, or struggling or trying to get, overcome their other things. But it, for me, it was about femininity. I don't know if that answers it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're dealing with something that every gay man, I think really knows, which is um, how to hide it. Um, mm -hmm. The business of walking, the business of, of someone is watching you and you are moving in the street and there's something you're giving away that you can't stop yourself giving away. You don't know how to do it. And then you learn how to do it. What's interesting with Shuggy is that, that he, he doesn't learn that, that whatever's going on is femininity, or his queerness is apparent once he goes outside the door. So the world is not a safe place for him and he, he doesn't have the strategies. And that's a very interesting aspect of his character, that he doesn't strategize in that way. 
Yeah, he doesn't. He's he's almost so powerless to it. And he's also not only his uh, femininity, but he's also kind of infected by his mother's snobbery and her precocious, it becomes precociousness in him. But he's seen very quickly as othered by the other kids. But I remember very profoundly from my own upbringing, that sort of idea of if you practice, if you get better at kicking a ball, if you just keep kissing girls until something catches, or you learn how to walk or you know, you become violent before the other boy gets to be violent. Or in Shuggy's point of view, he's reading these historical football scores. Absolutely useless, unless you're going to become a football pundit. But he goes through them like they're a rosary or a novena, and he repeats them as he rushes across the city or wherever he goes. And, and of course, it's powerless to change him, but he thinks if he does this and he has an interest in these things, it will it will alter him. And, and that's the really dark power of homophobia is he's told very quickly in the book, what's wrong with you? You know, it's, it's, it's put to him as a thing he can fix or a thing he should be fixed because he's not like everybody else. You know, you're no right. Why are you like that? Even his grandmother says to his mother, you should nip that in the bud as if your sexuality is something that can be nipped in the bud. Of course it isn't. But that was their understanding of it, you know, fix them, fix them, make them more masculine, make them fit in. Um, and so he's lonely. One of the things that makes the book so memorable and uh, so great really is, is the figure of Agnes. Um, and uh, one of the strange things about her is even, I mean, there's one moment when she's at her very worst where you honestly start to love her, which is when she gets, when she gets the address book and the phone, and, and you realize, oh my God, she's going to phone someone else again. She's going to look, scroll down the names and pick someone and call them and scream at them. For some reason, I get pleasure out of this. I find, well, so she should. I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is her, her also her, her, somehow there's a, there's a sense of life in her, rage in her. But there are other moments um, where she really does try to rescue the situation. And uh, these are very tense moments because you've seen, how how close the abyss is that you know that, that her drinking is, is her ability to get to drink you know she could drink for Ireland you know and um, mm -hmm. I presume say drink for Scotland but we say drink for Ireland um, <laughs> that she could drink for Ireland yet when she gets that job at night and she's in the garage she really is what's called doing her best and then she meets Eugene and you realize this now is and you, you become so tense as a reader because what you have done as the novelist is sort of uh -huh. build an arc for the book that it isn't a simple matter of desolate Scotland, desolate woman and desolate son. It is that all of them have this extraordinary amount of glittering life in them and hers with Eugene. And there's a scene, and I just wonder if you could just, um, um, just take us through it for a second, where she's in, Eugene just wants to have a good relationship with her. And he wants him to have an ordinary life. He says, well, why can you not? Anyone reading this goes, oh, please don't do this. Why can't I just have one or two glasses of wine? Then you'll be fine. And just don't have a third. You know, they, yeah. They're in a restaurant and she knows what will happen. The reader knows what yeah. will happen. Eugene doesn't know what will happen. So you have, you have a drama now of is she or is she not going to do this? I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of tension because after that really it's downhill, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's once that glass, if, if, I'm not going to give it away, but if she drinks that glass of wine, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And we've been building, Agnes has been building to this sense of sobriety. But it comes back to that question of normal. Shuggy keeps being asked to be normal. And Eugene, as Agnes's new love, thinks she can be normal. He doesn't, you know, it's a heavy drinking society anyway, Colm, as you know. And so the bright line between uh, someone who likes to take a drink and then someone who's an alcoholic can be hard to see. And it's a bit of a comment on how men fancy themselves as the hero in every situation, because Eugene keeps saying to Agnes, I, but you wouldn't need to be an alcoholic with me by your side. And, you know, I'll look after you. And I'm, he's this fine, upstanding Catholic man. You know, he's handsome. He's very upright. He's, you know, he's very different to the other men that, that are in her life. And, and he really comes in as a hero, almost riding through the city in this black taxi, like it's a steed. Uh, and, you know, he's going to fix her. And, but he cannot almost believe he can't accept the limits of his own power or the limits of Agnes's disease. And so he keeps badgering her, just have a drink, just have a drink. It's what normal people do. You know, we'll have a wee drink, we'll have a good time. You'll be fine, I'm here now, I'm here. And, and Agnes, of course, having gone through 250 pages of looking at her disease, understands it's not like that at all. And so she tries to resist him, but 
I was thinking very much about Agnes as a character that's very influenced or she's not shaped in terms of her attitude, but she's, you know, her life is molded by the men in it from her father to her first husband to, to Shug and then to Eugene. And even, to be honest, she's got two sons who are watching her and, and sort of helping her. And it's, she's almost a classical heroine in that way and doomed. Uh, you know, she's a little bit of a test of the D'Urbervilles, but it's the men who shape her fate. Um, around her and Eugene's really the linchpin in that. But but the other thing I would say is I want the reader to feel the terrorism that Shuggy feels. When you love someone who is addicted to alcohol, you never quite know what you're going to get. Some, some drunks are very consistent. They're always angry or they're always sad. And I'd never known that. I'd known alcohol to be a very combustible thing. And you never knew if I was going to get a happy mother or someone who was looking for a party or someone who was looking to you know, be incredibly maudlin. And so what the reader goes through is what Shuggy goes through in the book, where we're always, we even start a very bright chapter, a very happy chapter, and you're waiting for the turn, or you're waiting for something to happen. Because there's, even in, on good days, there's a terror uh, to loving someone with addiction, because you're just always waiting for something bad to happen. For those just joining us, this is an April 2021 interview between Scottish novelist Douglas Stewart and Irish novelist Colm Toybin about Stewart's 2020 text, Shuggy Bane. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. And, and, and I think, as you say, it's vital that Shuggy doesn't grow up. I mean, that he doesn't become a sexualized teenager, that he doesn't start mm-hmm. to date someone or fall, fall in love, that, that, he, that, that he remains this kid. And what you're exploring is is the idea of sexuality or, or homosexuality or queerness for a ten year old, for a twelve year old. What, what what that actually means, the, the, how puzzled you can be by that, and how isolated. There, there's there's a starkness in this. But I mean, despite the amount of detail that you mentioned at, at, at the earlier, that how do you forgive a character in fiction? by putting so much detail in that the reader begins to see them in real time, not by a set of easy adjectives, but by a very complex set of motives and um, substructures in the book. Um, It struck me though, there's a starkness at the heart of the book, which has some connection to Greek drama. It is as Mm. though she's doomed. Someone has been prophesized into tragedy, that there's a doom attached to her, that she is somehow or other, one of these Greek women who emerges courtesy of voice and that, is, that she has a grandeur. She's a much larger figure than the figures around her. And the fact that she, sometimes she's the only Catholic on the estate adds to that. But, the, but, but also the fact that we're seeing her in so many different ways. Um, and all, but all around her are the shades, are the chorus, are these groups of women who emerge from outside their houses, standing on the street, staring at her, almost standing in some sort of theatrical pose, what you've just described at the window, sort of watching in as though we're, we're watching we're watching some ritual being enacted on a Scottish housing estate. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, it does. That's a beautiful reading of it. But it does, and I'd always understood and wanted to show that they were so formed by the chorus and especially with the the limited mobility of poverty you can't up and escape the people you're on stage with or the people that you live in a housing scheme with you can't just shirk them off and move to the other side of town or or re sort of uh restart uh, a relationship over and so what's happening in agnes's life is absolutely right there are all these people coming on stage and and either forming her or turning her or commenting on her or giving her a sense of herself and here's this tragic heroine at the center who actually is quite camp in a way because she's larger and more glamorous and she fills the page i hope in a very sort of she's so luminous against the gray city and yet they keep coming onto stage and and sort of taking a part of her or commenting on her or or punishing her in a way and and for me that you know agnes is the heart of the book i should have probably called it agnes bain but i was thinking about how children are often the splinter of hope that comes off of parents and and even when someone uh collapses under the the weight of their life they always hope for better for their kids and so shuggy is agnes i mean everything about him is agnes but yeah, I, I like I like that sort of point of view, Colm. Um, we, we were talking at the beginning about Margaret Thatcher, and I wonder if it was tempting in, when you were writing the book, or how deliberate it was, that yes, it's it's very much set in those years when Scotland is mm. being actively dismantled by someone very unpleasant, 
And mm-hmm. it, it must, I mean, another novelist might have put many, many more post-industrial scenes or, you know, really written a national novel about Scotland, what was happening to Scotland at that time. I think that you, by putting Agnes and Sugar at the very center of the book in a very intense way, you've managed to write a novel about the society without actually putting constant passages describing the politics of the moment. And I wonder how deliberate that was to leave out, to not put in what's happening in the newspapers each day. Yeah, it was super deliberate. And actually, it was part of the editing process after the first draft, because I realized when I put in the social unrest, the people that would navigate us through that would be the men in the book. So it would be Wally or it would be Leek, the middle son. And when I did that, I sort of left Agnes and Shuggy out of the frame a little bit because it was certainly a time when men were struggling. But what I wanted to show is when men struggle, it is women and children who suffer first and often suffer worst. But I didn't want to keep framing it around the men. I wanted this to be a woman's story and a, and a young gay boy's story. I felt that there was books that already covered that, post-industrial Glasgow and and what it meant to be a working man there. You know, Alistair Gray does it phenomenally. James Kelman does it as well. Um, and really what I wanted to do was to, even Agnes Owens, who actually is my favorite Scottish writer, talks about unemployment through a man's point of view uh, in Gentlemen of the West. And uh, here was a woman writing about a man, but I'd wanted to just focus on the people who were sort of getting the the effects of this of this shift without showing them as part of it. But also because, as you said earlier, it's a very intimate story. I Really what I set out to write was a love story. I didn't set out to write this big political book. Um, but you can't set a book in 1980s Glasgow in the working class without it touching on these really heavy subjects. But what I set out to write was a love story. It's about a mother and a son and how they're uh, trying to make the best of a bad situation. One of the other real pleasures in the book is the way in which you don't compromise the Scottishness of the book. In other words, I marked words that I didn't understand and I loved that I didn't understand. I presumed that they were part of the flavor of elsewhere, which is what a novel is about. It's called the flavor of elsewhere. And that you weren't actually talking down to me by putting in a received English word, by putting in a, you know, a proper word where the Scottish word was the word you wanted to use, that you weren't actually talking down to me. And there must have been moments when some editor said to you somewhere, or some poor translator said to you, <laughs> what are we going to do about you? What are we going to do about this? this what do you call it? The Scottish dialect, Scottish flavour, Scottish usage. I, I know that this is what Kel, this is the path that Kelman and Gray and the others all worked on. And in, 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 indeed, um, you know, train spotting gave the world a sort of Scottish dialect, a Scottish idiom. But, it, but it, nonetheless, there must have been moments when someone said to you, Douglas, could you, could you do something about this word? Because I don't understand it. Yeah, uh, I think, um, I don't know that they necessarily said it to me, but I think it was part of Shuggy being rejected so often by publishers. Um, I think it was so specific calm that people were wary of it. Um, but when I was writing the book, I was I wrote it in service to the characters. And these are two people that probably don't turn to literature, but also don't find themselves in literature very often. And I didn't want to then write about their lives and then exclude them from the work that I was that they're focused in. And so every choice I had, even using Scottish words, but even sometimes as a writer, when I was describing the weather or the sunrise, I didn't want to, I wanted to use the language of the people and to use something that they could also relate to. And if I was explaining something as being the color of two milky tea, the dawn light, that they would, you know, they could, they know what two milky tea looks like. And, and that was really sort of part of, part of my challenge there. But, you know, Gray and Kelman really fought to bring the Scottish vernacular to the fore so that a book like Shuggy could fly, really. You know, they, they did all the heavy lifting back in the 90s so that people could embrace a book like Shuggy. But by God, I think I'll spend the next four years of my life explaining what a tenement close is to, to translators everywhere in the world. <laughs> Shuggy's about to be translated into Mongolian, which I mean, that's, keeps me I mean, up at night. Part of the business of being Irish with Ulysses is that you spend your time thinking, how can any outsider understand those sort of terms that are in, that are in Joyce's book? Um, I, I think the book is the next, I, I think if you were teaching how to write a book, the principles by which you worked, the principles of making the character as complex as possible and allowing something to emerge, sometimes it emerges slowly, 
sometimes it's very clear, which is the astonishing love that exists and tenderness between the mother and the son. It, and it's not a damaging love, although it is sometimes. In other words, every time you do something, you do the opposite for a while and then you play with it. It's, it's, but I think at the heart of the book is a, a sort of love song written and from the perspective of a son to a very damaged mother. I would, that would be, that's all I ever wanted to achieve. So if that is true and you're a kind man for saying that, then I would be thrilled. I just, you know, I think it's a, it's a work of fiction. It is not a memoir, it's not my life, but I've been so profoundly, and actually your work's been such a huge influence on me as well in thinking about mother and son relationships. Uh, I think about the story of the night all the time uh, when I'm writing, uh, because there you have Richard Garay also sort of moving beyond the loss of his mother as he, as he sort of moves into his own sexuality column. And I think I've just been so profoundly affected by the loss of my mother at 16 that I've, everything I write is almost a love story to her, even the books I'm working on now. It's just about how do you overcome this, the biggest love of your life and losing it too soon, especially when it's so, um, it's not that it's mindless to addiction, but you know, you, you feel like such a failure as a son, I think, because you spent your entire life trying to save them or, or make it better or help. And, and of course, at the end of the day, the battle rages within, within the addict alone, and you can only do so much. And actually, that's what Shuggy comes to realize at the end of the book, you know, that's what his siblings, that's how they increase the stakes for him throughout it, because they keep saying she's not going to get better, and then they find their point to leave. And hopefully, as readers were wondering, when does Shuggy find that point, or does he? Um, but yeah, it's about love. And uh, I mean, it's been a hugely moving and affecting book. And uh, in Ireland, um, even though, I mean, only I think only half of you is Irish, but we, we can claim that half. We're very proud. We're very proud of you. <laughs> I just want to say that this book um, is available on Books Online from Court, and that anyone who wants to check out other events at Court can go to www.court.ie. And Douglas Stewart, uh, thank you very much for doing this. And thank you for being so open and, and uh, easy. And uh, I know some of my questions were too long, but um, anyway, thanks, thanks for, not, for not objecting to that. And uh, oh. I, I hope to see you soon. And we're all looking forward to your next book. Thank you very much, Colm. Thank you for talking to me today. It is an honor of my career to talk to one of my heroes. Uh, I don't mean to fanboy over you in front of everybody, but you've had such an influence on my writing. So. This has been one of the highlights of my entire career. Thank you. That's great. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. That's it for episode 22 of Read and Succeed. Join us for episode 23, reviewing 2021 International Booker Prize winner at night, All Blood is Black, by French author David Jopp. Groundbreaking stuff. Stay tuned. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.